Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings from the hill country of Central Texas. I'm Amos Fox, and this is Revolution in Military Affairs. On today's episode, we have Dr. Nate Jennings. In addition to being a close friend of mine, Nate is a professor at the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where he's uh, an instructor within the Department of Joint Interagency and Multinational Operations. Nate joined us today to talk about applied history and its utility and thinking and planning for war and warfare. So without further ado, here's Nate Jennings. All right. Okay, so today we have uh, Professor Dr. Nate Jennings, uh, Professor of the Armies, if you will, uh, Nate Jennings, who works at the Command and General Staff College in the uh, Department of Joint Inter... Or- is it interagency or interorganization? What's the I? Uh, interagency. What's the M? <laughs> I forgot the acronym. <laughs> Multinational. What's the O? Uh, operations. There we go. So we got uh, Professor of the Army's Nate Jennings from the uh, Command and General Staffs College, DeJamo Department, with us today. Uh, not only is he is he that, but he's also a friend of mine that uh, we've been friends for several years, and it's uh, he's one of my favorite people to talk to and work on projects with because he's a uh, He's, uh, he's brilliant and makes you a better person uh, and better thinker when you get to work with him. So, Nate, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Amos. Thanks for the kind comments. Uh, Professor of the Armies, that's a new one, uh, but I like it. I guess I'll, I'll take that one. I am going to forward that to your boss and tell him emphatically that uh, that needs to be your new job title. Yeah, sounds good. All right. So for today, we're going to uh, talk about, and we just got done talking about uh, UT football, the University of Texas football. So I guess we're going to transition to some real stuff of substance here and talk about uh, applied history and its relevance to 
military thinking and how we approach uh, essentially educating ourselves, educating officers, educating people in general about military operations and war and warfare. So uh, I guess the first question I've got for you today, Nate, is what is applied history? Yeah, so applied history is could be considered as a subset of academic history or the discipline of history. Um, and if we look, if we start with just history first, uh, it for uh, for professional affairs, it allows us to increase uh, understanding through critical thinking. It allows us to solve problems. It allows us to uh, apply rigorous analysis. Um, and if I could bring in a, a, guy, a fairly controversial guy named Carl von Clausewitz, people disagree, agree with many of the things he said in On War. But one thing I like, he said, quote, history had, had no lessons or rules to offer the student. It could only broaden his understanding and strengthen his critical judgment. So as far as the military profession, that's kind of the use of history, how it can uh, uh, make us better at, uh, at our profession, at what we do. Um, I could offer up also Harvard, Harvard University. They have a uh, definition. It's the production and use of historical reasoning to clarify public and private challenges and choices. And so based off that applied history, um, it's something where we can employ uh, analysis of past campaigns, trends, leaders, etc., in order to apply insights to improve effectiveness and increase institutional understanding. That's what I would offer up. All right. So in addition to that, why just in a general uh, sense for the for the average listener who's not necessarily um, all that concerned with history and, and thinks that history may or may not be all that helpful uh, as it relates to military uh, thinking, why is applied history useful in a tangible sense? Well, uh, for the U.S. military, the U.S. Army in particular, we're in the business of winning wars. And for most of us, uh, even uh, kind of today's senior officers have fought in maybe one, two, three campaigns. But there are thousands of campaigns in the past that we can look at and gave, gain insights from. Uh, you know, terrain changes, weather changes, cultural environment changes, but we're still human beings struggling against each other to achieve objectives. And so there's a lot of value in looking at how human beings of the past had to grapple with adverse circumstances. Yeah, I think that that highlights a really good point that uh, is, is often overlooked when we talk about this campaigning, right? So in my, in my personal opinion, uh, campaigning is really the, the starting point of, of understanding war and warfare because it ties, it, it ties into the strategic and political side of things, but then also it ties down into the tactical side of things. And one of the things that I think, yeah, I guess it's a good time because uh, the movie Napoleon's about to come out. Uh, and I, a side note to this, uh, to Napoleon and the movie real quick, I don't care that historians find it inaccurate. It's a movie. So everybody chill out. Um, and I love Napoleon. So I'm super happy there's a Napoleon movie coming out. Now back to the, uh, to the real point here, campaigns and Bonaparte in history, right? Why is it useful? Napoleon uh, said something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing here, that um, you know, when he went into a battle or when he went into a campaign, it wasn't his first time experiencing it because he had studied history so thoroughly and so broadly that he already had a thousand mental repetitions of any campaign that he could have possibly encountered uh, before stepping off into that campaign. 
And when I and I forget where exactly I read that it may have been in Chandler's um, the campaigns of Napoleon. It may have been somewhere else, but I always found that that was a very very useful definition, not definition, but justification for why history is useful. Um, so, having gotten that out of the way, Nate, what do you think is one of the um, how can history be abused, and what are examples of its of its abuse? Yeah. So just as it's a very useful thing, it could also be. Uh... Uh, abused with with negative effect and probably the number one problem is uh, both for historians and practitioners you find the vignette the case study that uh, tells you what what you wanted to say and so a lot of this is confirmation bias Um, so I want to go on offense I want to conduct operational maneuver I'm going to find the case study where it worked and then kind of shoehorn that case study into the contemporary setting and uh, use it to justify my uh, the approach I wanted to use all along. And so that's not to say there isn't, you know, value in it. If I want to do Operation Maneuver or if I'm either, uh, say, I'm a Ukrainian commander right now looking at this uh, imposing Russian defense, there's value in looking at, in looking at a variety of case studies mm-hmm. where it worked in the past. You know, that's they aren't the first army that's... Uh, uh, faced a defensive uh, construct and had to figure out a way to either uh, penetrate it or envelop it uh, to restore you know, mobility and decision to the battlefield. They're not the first to face this, but you have to be very careful. You have to, uh, you have to understand what context is different, what, um, what you're taking away and what you're applying. And that's, that's kind of what I would offer is the job partly of historians who are, when they're facilitating professional military dialogue, education, to help guide that and make sure um, that, uh, you know, wishful thinking, that, bi- you know, willful bias isn't coming into play. Yeah, that that makes me think of when we uh, went back to uh, the global war on terrorism in Guat, right? We had, I'm using air quotes here, success in Iraq uh, with the counterinsurgency approach of, of Dave Petraeus and then... Uh, we were struggling to get things going off the ground in Afghanistan uh, shortly after Petraeus' time in command of, of the Iraq mission. And so it was one of those like, hey, let's just shake and bake the coin thing from Iraq on Afghanistan. We'll pull in the same commander. Uh, we'll actually demote him and put him in charge of this this military operation. And, uh, you know, it worked in the past, so it's going to work here. And I think that that's an important thing. Uh, because clearly it didn't, and uh, that 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 whole thing fizzled fairly quick. And there's a lot of cultural things that I think folks, when they look at this, they may look at the terrain, they may look at the actual, you know, the operation that's going on. Oh, it's counterinsurgency. This is a counterinsurgency. So we can apply the same thing. But in that situation, a lot of the cultural differences were what undid uh, that that Petraeus approach in Afghanistan. Um, so. Moving on from that, Nate, what are some of the applications uh, associated with applied history? Well, so we have what we said, kind of operational uh, campaigning. You can definitely look at, do battle analysis, campaign analysis, apply that to um, uh, to a lot of leadership studies. Uh, uh, We could tell uh, operational art studies, Uh, but there's also other aspects where we see it applied. One is uh, professional military education, the formal education programs that our officers and NCOs attend. Uh, in many of them, there is a, a sequence of lessons that uh, will deliver uh, kind of the evolution of military history so they can understand kind of the trends, the revolutions, the changes, uh, kind of 
one way I like to think about it is a challenge and response dynamic leading up to the contemporary environment that they will go fight or operate in. So that's, uh, as an example, where I work at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, we uh, we take the students from really Frederick the Great to the Iraq War uh, and follow all the, the, the winding road of uh, vacillations between kind of offense, defense, changes in the strategic environment, both success and failure to connect uh, strategic a- uh, objectives to, to tactical actions, things like that. Um, and it's a, it's a really great study to show the students that uh, what they're dealing with um, hasn't been exactly done before, but there sure are some, some patterns uh, that, that, that may rhyme or be familiar in the past. So one, uh, I had a student defend his oral comprehensive exam the other day, and he brought out the departure from Vietnam and many of the travails the army went through in those years after to, to reinvent itself, uh, to adopt a new battle concept, uh, a new force structure, volunteer army. And so look, using that lens to examine how we are doing this now after, after Afghanistan, as we very similarly pivot towards large scale combat again. Um, so those, uh, that can be really useful. Uh, second, I would say leadership organizational studies. So we can pick a guy like Patton, like Napoleon, and just study how did they make decisions? How did they make sense of chaotic environments? How did they uh, lead their staff? How did they interface in, with soldiers? Um, how did they arrange tactics to achieve strategic ends, which uh, can be, this seems simple, can be harder than, than people think. Um, third, individual development. So I know you read a lot. Uh, uh, you'll see officers, NCOs will... Uh, pursue their own uh, individual education program uh, based off kind of the kind of officer, the kind of leader they want to be. Last thing I'll mention is staff rides. So organ- organized group visits to a, a, an old battlefield, whereas usually you have a kind of a historian that's a tour guide, but also uh, the officers attending will adopt roles of uh, leaders who were in that battle and you physically move through the terrain, talking through the actions and decisions of all the participants and understanding how the outcome ended up the way it did. Um, so uh, those all different, uh, a real variety of ways history can be applied. Yeah, I think that that, sorry, I didn't mean to step on you. Um, I was trying to jump in there at the end. I thought you were wrapping up on that point. But uh, a couple of comments on that. I think it's terrific. Uh, a few things that, you, that I want to elaborate on. So the challenge response dynamic, that to me is one of the most fundamental things in thinking about military uh, operations, regardless of what scale it is, you know, all the way from the interactions of states at the political level to the smallest finite tactical uh, situation. That challenge response dynamic, that is an iterative process that goes on until it no longer goes on. And I think that that's something, if everybody gets the opportunity to go sit down and listen to Dr. Ethan Rafuse at CGSC, I think he's still in the history department there. Uh, listen to him talk about that. He taught that concept when I was in uh, his history class there, when I was, when I went through uh, the command and general staff college. And to me, that was one of the, like the few things that I've taken away that I still apply anytime I do anything as it relates to whether it's looking at history or looking at future ideas, that challenge response dynamic is just absolutely important. And I think it's even more important as we start looking at uh, the, the LISCO problems that you're going to face, right? When industrialized states that don't just, uh, collapse upon, you know, 
hitting on a, 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 a nominal center of gravity. When that state doesn't collapse, when that state's military doesn't collapse, you're then stuck in this challenge response dynamic and you have to think through all the things that uh, you're going to have to do to essentially exhaust your opponent. So uh, I'm really happy that you mentioned that. The other thing is the staff rides. I too have uh, found those very useful in my own career. You know, we, as both being SAMS graduates, we went down to Vicksburg and uh, it, extremely eye opening when you talk about breaking the siege of Vicksburg and what the Union Army had to do in those hills that they had to work through and that terrain that they had to get through to get to the city and finally penetrate that siege and break that siege. And uh, it's just mind blowing some of the terrain when you actually got out there and walked it. And then you looked at the, you know, the defenses that have been rebuilt and put in place out there that are that are there. And so it's just uh, very useful. I was at Gettysburg a few months ago. Didn't do a staff ride, but I did my, I don't know what you'd call it, an, an Amos ride <laughs> where I just went and drove yeah. around and looked and was like thinking through, you know, the terrain that they're working through out there. And it's just mind blowing when you think about how you're moving these, whether again, regardless of the size of the army, whether it was a big army or a small tactical engagement. Uh, the last point on what you're saying too, when we talk about people and studying people, I think an interesting part of this that, that is also often overlooked is examining how people thought about war and warfare. And so if you read about Patton, I've read a lot about Patton just as an armor guy, I think you're obliged to. Um, and one of the key things that I thought that came out when I studied, when, I, when I've studied Patton uh, was that, and it's, it's a nugget buried in wars. I knew it. And uh, it's also, I believe in Patton, a genius for war by Carlo Dieste. And he talks about the importance of the road network. And he said the fundamental and again, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially, fundamentally, uh, you you cannot understand how to prosecute a war and whatever theater it is if you don't understand the road network in that theater. And that's more than just doing a Maku and saying, hey, this is a high-speed avenue of approach, uh, or whatever the case may be as it relates to that. It's truly understanding how that, that network works together. And then the last one on that, too, is Napoleon. I think when I've studied uh, with my studies in the, uh, from my studies of Napoleon, have told me that his primary, um, his primary, th the, the thing that animated the way that he fought was uh, mobility. And, uh, you know, so between those two ideas, I think it's just important to think about how people, you know, I'm going to use again, air quotes here, great captains to borrow Liddell Hart's term, um, think about the conduct of both war and warfare. And so those are important. So now that I'm done uh, preaching, Nate, what are some methods that uh, historians can use uh, to, to approach, or anybody really, for applied history? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Yeah, so there's a variety of ways you can you can bring it. You can bring it as a story, a general or intuitive survey of the history, and then unfold that for the audience. Uh, what you can make things more interesting by selecting a frame or model. Um, so uh, you know you could uh, uh, use a doctrinal frame. You could use a, a social science or political science model, and those can be useful in arranging uh, the storyboard or the kind of what happened and the deductions to help your audience understand it, especially if it's a model they understand. So something extremely simple, if I wanted to do a maneuver case study, we could bring uh, right now, I could reach into the Army's new FM 3.0 and bring out the tenets of operations, uh, which are convergence, agility, depth, and endurance. And we could just look at how did, how did uh, some army in the past either fulfill or not fulfill the, the imperative to, uh, to operate along those lines. Um, and then that could help the, the audience make sense of what happened and then apply. And then you could just ask, you know, for example, uh, if, you want, if you're doing a vignette uh, on gap crossing, maybe the 73 war, we could look at both the Egyptians and the Israelis, how they both crossed the Suez Canal. Both uh, were successful in their crossing. And we could apply uh, some kind of gap crossing model to understand it and then apply it um, for future application. Yeah, the, uh, the, a point with that too, though, that I think it's, uh, there's a cautionary tale there that lies with, and I'm not saying you say this, I'm just saying this as a general point. There's a, the, a cautionary tale with using today's logic to explain operations from the past um, because in, in, in a lot of instances, the dynamics that are at play are fundamentally different. And so um, I think folks just have to be careful. And again, I'm not saying that that's what you said, but um, I think people might be able to take it that direction. Um, so what is... Yeah, a- absolutely. I, I would jump in there yeah. and add. That's why sometimes the broader the principle you're applying, that's it's more relatable. So that's why the principles of war have remained relatively timeless. Um, versus doing a deep dive into perhaps something like um, reconstruct complex, multi-domain operations. Uh, when you start getting into the very particulars of a contemporary doctrine, it pre- becomes a, a little bit more difficult to yeah. pull from the past. And this is the thing that, that I've tried to carry forward throughout this podcast is there are certain ideas out there that just exist uh, and belong to the, to the universe. Uh, they're worldly, right? No particular... Um, no particular organization or institution owns those ideas. And so they are up for uh, examination and refinement by anybody anywhere. And so maneuver for, for instance, is one of those principles of war. Another one, I think that that, that idea belongs to the world and it's not, you know, the uh, proprietary uh, ownership of, of a, a specific service or a specific organization. And so those ideas you may say they're timeless, Nate, but I don't think they're timeless. That and they're only a hundred. Yeah. They're only a hundred years old, anyway, right? So JFC Fuller only <laughs> wrote them like nineteen twenty-four uh, initially, and then refined them a couple times, and then, you know, since uh, I think it was nineteen, I forget nineteen thirty-six-ish, uh, the principles of war that we call the principles of war uh, haven't really changed. But uh, that's a problem for another day, and that's uh, that's one of the the things I enjoy pounding away on is. Refining. I'm actually working on a paper right now that's an, an update to the principles of war that, you know, that'll get published and people will read it and they'll be like, yeah, but this ain't the principles of war. And then they'll throw it away. But, 
<laughs> Such is the problem mm-hmm. for people involved in the world that we're in. All right, so I know we picked uh, we 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 uh, briefly talked about it earlier, but uh, can you draw out a couple of specific examples of the perils that exist within applied history in a bit more detail? Uh, than what you meant, uh, what you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So the first one I mentioned confirmation bias, you know, having a preconceived notion about what, what, uh, what I want to do or how this organization wants to operate and then reaching back and finding the historical example, um, uh, maybe cherry picking an example to exemplify that, to justify that, uh, quite often bending or manipulating some of the, the facts or points of emphasis, uh, points of uh, emphasis. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely something to be careful with. I would say anchoring bias. So if you are, so I could offer up the U.S. Army, I think, has a, man, a maneuver-centric culture. No. And we are prone to uh, look at, to apply that as a solution to many different problems. You mean every problem. Not always appropriate. <laughs> Maybe every problem. Um, so being anchored to uh, something like that may, may uh, actually... Um, lead you to, again, cherry pick the history, apply case studies that are ill-fitting, or uh, try to use um, use a case study to not twist, but uh, manipulate how we see the contemporary environment and the problems we'll face. Finally, I would say conformity bias. Uh, so uh, manipulating the history for what your audience wants or what your peers or organization want. And so historians, I think, have to be have, have the, the rose pin on them to be a truth teller. And if you're going to go speak to an audience, you should speak uh, not to what they want to hear, but what you think is a proper rendering of the history and what, what insights can be applied. You know, it's, uh, it's great to hear you say that because that, uh, for the listeners, if you remember in episode two of uh, Don't Be a Farnsworth, which was our conversation with uh, General Retired Pat Donahoe, he was uh, speaking truth to power at a conference, and he got evicted immediately from the conference once the uh, the senior person at that conference realized that he was saying something that didn't align with what he wanted to hear. And uh, so, you, just, yes, I agree. Just know that that may get you in some trouble. The other thing is, uh, you know, it's funny we talk about confirmation bias, or you mentioned confirmation bias. I got two points on that. The first is, um, you know, if you if anybody's read Pure Strategy by Everett Dolman, he talks in there and he says that those who only speak in the language of their institution are bound by that language's uh, uh, shortcomings, right? That's a paraphrase of what Dolman said. This gets to a point, I think, when we talk about how militaries think about and understand and publish ideas about both war and warfare, right? So if uh, your concepts and doctrine are so limited that you only have a small, finite number of things and ideas, when you get into a situation that doesn't align with those, and you're often going to find yourself ill-disposed to be able to understand and operate effectively early on in those environments. There's going to be a steep, steep learning curve. And so this is why, this is part of the reason I've always banged away on the drum that like it doesn't necessarily matter uh, what you want to do. The ideas within your doctrine need to talk about the broad context of things that you may come into contact with, right? Whether that's a proxy war, whether that's a siege, whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter if you do or don't want to do it. You're likely going to experience it. 
And if you don't have it at least mentioned in detail within your doctrine, within your concepts, within how you're thinking and speaking about both war and warfare, then you're often going to run into that problem and be like, well, there's a maneuver solution to that. And so that reminds me of an instance, and you were in this conversation, and I won't say who we were talking to, but we were, we were discussing, as part of this huge conversation, we were discussing uh, what was going on in Syria at the time, right? The proxy war that was going on in Syria. And the individual we were talking to said, well, gentlemen, you know, there's a maneuver solution to that problem. And I <laughs> I was like shocked and immediately like that Dolman quote came back to mind where it's, you know, you're essentially bound by the language of the system or the language of uh, uh, the rule or you're bound by the rules of the language that you speak and and, uh, and the doctrine that you have. And if you don't have doctrine that it exposes you to a broad range and a deep range of ideas uh, that you're going to experience in war and warfare, then you're going to have an inability to address those, whether cogn- cognitively or in an applied sense on the battlefield. Um, all right. So. With that, Nate, uh, we're getting close on time here. Uh, what are some closing ideas that you want to make here with applied history? Yeah, I just think uh, I, I think we need to a uh, just first point sustain it in military professional education. Um, this is a, a really valuable aspect of these uh, curriculum, and we as even as we see operational history large kind of disappearing from. The university setting yeah. uh, uh, in favor of more social, political uh, history. This is a really good opportunity to introduce students to a longer view. So you mentioned there's many different solutions to many different problems when it comes to campaigning operations. And so a longer history sequence is going to show you that that maneuver is, is sometimes the solution, yep. but not always. Sometimes there's other uh, other types of operations, sometimes less, uh, you know, less savory may, may result in more attrition. And sometimes that's the only way to go. You're not allowed to say the word attrition on this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, and then finally, I have to say for, for the, both the historian, the practitioner continue to learn, continue to seek out different perspectives um, continue to engage in uh, the debates uh, over um, over how history informs our judgment, our critical thinking, um, and those are going to be ongoing. Yeah, that's uh, your your comment earlier on battle analysis and your comments that you just made here at the closing. Um, those to me, those intersect in many cases. So, like, I, I am not a historian. Um, but I do dabble in reading history because I think it's important. And one of the things that I've always found important, and this is something I didn't know until I went to Sam's, was the battle analysis or the campaign analysis, uh, or not the battle analysis, but campaign analysis, which you can do it at you know either level, really. And it was always an important thing because it contextualized the ideas that you're reading about in a way that linked up with the, uh, with the language that you speak, uh, your doctrine, if you will, uh, and in many cases, it also showed you where your doctrine didn't necessarily, it had gaps. Uh, and so you had to figure out how to address those little, those little things that didn't align with your doctrine in a separate way. So the, but the campaign analysis to me was a phenomenal tool. And when I was there, uh, I had, uh, I had professor, uh, Anthony Carlson, uh, teach us how to do the campaign analysis. And it was always, it was always a lot of fun because when we would do these campaign analysis, campaign analyses, uh, he would 
you would t- being a new SAM student, you would often tend to revert back to the tactical side of things, right? And so you'd start drifting toward talking about tactics. And he'd always stop you and say, no, 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 we're not talking about that. We're talking about the operational level. We're talking about campaigns. You need to stay firmly rooted at that level and think and talk about that level. And so it forced you to apply the ideas of history, but then also, in this case, the elements of operational art. Usually when we did the uh, when we did a campaign analysis, and I don't know how, how it was for you, but the elements of operational art were essentially the uh, the matrices that we used uh, to, to examine these, these campaigns. And I just... I want to make that plug. It's something I think anybody that's trying to study, um, study history, study any sort of, like if you want to get the Ardennes campaign, right, you can sit down and do the elements of operational art and you can go the allies and you can go the Germans, right? And you can just crosswalk those ideas. And it's a, a very helpful tool to make, you know, reading where you've got these, you know, potentially uh, ambiguous ideas floating around your head, something that you can pick up and make more tangible. And so I just, uh, in case anybody's looking for a way to help make reading about, you know, the history of the histories of war and warfare, uh, something more useful to them. That's a tool that I think is very, very helpful. Um, so anyway, I've rambled, uh, quite a bit, Nate, is there anything else you'd like to say here before we close out? No, I appreciate what you're doing. I think this is a great podcast. I, I think, uh, you're one of the top thinkers out there, uh, and you're tackling a lot of the, the thorny problems that, uh, kind of the, the American military profession uh, has grappled with and will need to continue uh, grappling with. Well, thanks. Yep. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate the, uh, appreciate the kind words. And for everybody, again, this is uh, Dr. Nate Jennings, uh, professor of the armies <laughs> uh, at uh, the department of DJMO at uh, the CGSC at Fort Leavenworth. And uh, he's got a lot of good stuff. If you just get out there and Google his name, uh, there's a ton of stuff that Nate's written over the past several years. Uh, I've uh, been trying to outproduce Nate in terms of number of, of, of productions, but he's ahead of me in many categories to include. He's already published a book on, on Texas. Was it Texas Cavalry in the Civil War or just Texas Cavalry in general? It's, uh, that's one chapter. It's really a study on Texas uh, frontier military tradition mm-hmm. that had a, a real cavalry focus because of uh... – really having to fight the Comanche and the Mexicans across an expansive frontier. Yeah. It's uh, certainly, if you've never been to Texas, a very expansive frontier. <laughs> uh, but anyway, thanks, Nate. I'm going to go ahead and once we, uh, once I get this put together, I'll put your book and uh, several of your uh, last publications. Also, the last thing on here is the uh, Nate, me, Nate, and another guy uh, several years ago wrote a paper titled The Army's Wrong About Future War. Uh, so go read that. That's terrific. It was published in December of 2018. Um, and many things that have happened since that paper came out have been, uh, proven to be fact, uh, based off our, our reading of tying history into what we thought about the future war. So, uh, that's just a plug for our own little paper there. I think it's great. And, um, that's it. So thanks again, Nate. And, uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Go Longhorns. Yeah, and go Chiefs. Uh, I know you got a big game today.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.